0: You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The NOM. Raindrops are falling on my head, and just like the guy's feet are too big for his bed, nothing seems to fit. Those raindrops are falling on my head, and they keep falling, so I just... Hello and welcome to episode 55 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel comic series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I am your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I am continuing my coverage of the series with issue number 48, which is a Chuck Dixon-written issue that features Marines as his been his preferred group to tell stories about. I'm also going to go way back to the beginning of the nom and take a look at the very first fifth to the first story, which appeared in Savage Tales number one. There's no date on the story in the I'm 48. In other words, Dixon doesn't indicate what month or year it takes place, so I chose a song at random from the year of Dixon's last story. And this is Night That Was 1970, and that is Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head by B.J. Thomas, a song that was written by Hal Davis and Burt Bacharach and spent four weeks at number one in January of 1970. It was also famously used in the films Putch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which starred Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Issue number 48 came out on July 31st, 1990, and was cover dated September 1990, according to Mike's Amazing World. Our story is The C Note, and it was written by Chuck Dixon. Wayne Vance the penciler, Tony DiZuniga is the inker, Phil Felix did the letters and colors, Don Daly is your editor, and Tom DeFalco is the editor-in-chief. The cover is by Andy Kubert. It shows three Marines firing machine guns from behind a pile of sandbags while taking fire themselves, and the cover caption says, When you gamble in the Nam, you bet your life. And for the first time in 48 issues, we have a classic Marvel Comics intro. Two decades ago, Southeast Asia became a home away from home for two million Americans as they fought the longest and most controversial conflict their nation had known since the war between the states. Old enough to kill, but too young to vote, this is their story. Stan Lee presents the Nam. We begin in the jungle between An Long and the Cambodian border. Bin, an NVA soldier, and his comrades enjoyed lunch knowing that the enemy is far away. The noises of the animals are cut short by a lazy thumping sound that grows louder. A helicopter. The largest Bin has ever seen. It releases a bomb so large it seems to drop in slow motion. Bin watches its descent with fascination. What new horror have the Americans brought them? We see the bomb fall, and the splash page shows the explosion beneath the helicopter. The CH-54 claws through the sky as the 10,000-pound daisy cutter impacts in the jungle below. The explosion turns triple canopy vegetation into splinters and ash for a 50-meter radius. It is the first birth pang of a fire support base. They'll name the fire base Natalie after the CO's favorite movie star. The Marines arrive and sweep the area while the NVA watch, and they bring in a bulldozer and a trencher. As construction goes on, one of the Marines, Hap, asks another, Bennington, if he has anything better to do than watch machines dig holes. Bennington asks what he means, and Hap suggests they play cards. Bennington takes a rain check. Later, at Hap's bunker, Bennington and some of the guys play cards with Hap, while a greenie helps set up a mortar and other defenses. Hap, quickly, Hap loses quite a bit of money in the card game, "'and the evening wears on. "'By nightfall the captions say the bunkers are finished. "'The marines settle in for their first night in the new home. "'The night noises of the jungle cover the approach of their neighbors. "'They're naked except for their loincloths. "'Nothing to snag on barbed wire but flesh. "'Their bodies are rubbed with ash "'so they don't reflect the moonlight. "'The Bangalore charges were tear holes "'in the wire for the main assault.' These men are referred to as sappers, and we see them slide up to the barbed wire and plant explosives and attempt to turn some claymores around. Unfortunately for one of them, the claymore was set in anticipation of someone trying to turn it around, and he sets it off, alerting everyone. The card game breaks up and they begin firing, taking out two of the sappers. Then the NVA rushes in and starts attacking the firebase. Hap, Bennington, and the others begin firing and take out who they can. The mortars fire, but they are hitting behind the NVA. The guys firing the mortars set up the next one higher and it lands short, almost hitting the Marines. An NVA soldier gets behind the sandbags and is about to take out Hap when Bennington spots him and shoots him. The assault continues and the NVA prepares its own mortar, hitting the Marine's mortar crew, and our soldiers start to get overwhelmed by the enemy, who continues to pour in. They call for backup and air support comes. Bennington indicates where they should shoot by dumping some gasoline on the ground and lighting it, and the air support works, taking out a number of the enemy. One, however, gets through, holding a grenade and lets it blow up in his hand as he gets to Hap. Bennington comes upon Hap's body and discovers he is breathing, but barely. As the assault winds down, Bennington tries to keep his friend's spirit up, and Hap pulls out the $100 he owed Bennington from the card game, and then he dies. Later, as they clean up, Bennington is asked to get a detail together and says he'll be right on it. As he's going around, a Vietnamese girl comes up to him offering him a deal on NVA soldiers' belt buckle, and he says, I'll buy it. I want to be a war hero. She asks how much he will pay. He gives her the 100 bucks, telling her, keep the change. I actually looked up what a sapper was because there aren't any nom notes in this issue and at a glance it looks like the story here is making the enemy out to be incredibly savage in sort of a racist stereotype way as opposed to what we've seen so far. After all in quite a number of Doug Murray's issues of the series the VC and NVA are seen as the enemy but there's a well-roundedness to that view and if he was trying to show us that the enemy As if he was trying to show us that they were more than some sort of faceless, quote, enemy, especially since we know that at the root of everything was the fact that the Vietnam War was a civil war between two countries that we happened to get involved in. Well, the sappers were an actual type of Vietnamese fighter. And sapper is a general term used for a number of people who undertake special operations. The pictures that I saw online did show them in very little clothing, as Dixon describes them in the issue, and Van Zandt draws them. They were very often used for sneak attacks and ambushes on firebases like the one in the story because of their ability to get much closer to the enemy than a conventional soldier with a rifle. It's also my understanding that this was an incredibly risky job because quite a number of sappers were not very well armed. The battle itself is a well-paced one. At first, I wasn't sure why the Vietnamese just didn't attack the Americans while they were building the base, but when they made their move at night, it started to make more sense because the cover of the darkness can be very helpful. Van Zant and Dizaniga do a good job at showing us how many NVA were attacking the firebase and why exactly it is that the Marines got overwhelmed. It's not just a small unit by any means. They swarm the base and there's only so much that our characters can really do. On the other hand, having Hap owe Bennington $100 and him keep joking about it any time they're in trouble seemed a little contrived. And it also made me wonder if this was another fill-in, because none of the characters are the ones we'll see down the line as far as I can tell. Dixon may have come back to them, but at the moment it seems like he has to keep his story self-contained. So Hap becomes the guy who has to die, and the whole $100 thing at the end, with Hap giving it to Bennington, and Bennington giving it to the girl, well, I don't know. Don't get me wrong, I love Chuck Dixon as a writer, but this is something I feel I'd seen a hundred times before in television or movies, maybe in other comics. It doesn't make this issue a clunker by any stretch of the imagination, But I was definitely sighing a little when that happened, and it makes the story easier to ignore in the grand scheme of things. Of course, the grand scheme of things as they are is kind of up in the air at the point. Dixon will be taking over as the regular writer with issue number 54, but until then, we have Doug Murray giving us a three-parter that I believe is his last nom story before the first Punisher story. In fact, it might be his last nom story overall. So if this seems a little listless here and there, that's because it is. No historical context this time around, of course, except for that one little tidbit I gave you about the sapper. Let's take a look at letters and ads for this month. Incoming this month, we have Fred Meath, address withheld by request. He said, I just read a book on a man who personally sent 93 enemy soldiers to see Uncle Ho. His name is Sergeant Carlos Hathcock, the best professional marine sniper whoever was. He was called Long Trang, White Feathered, by the VC because they were so afraid of him. They never saw him, but when they heard him, one of them was, one of them would be dead. An issue, do an issue on him. We have as reader Joel Kochio correctly guessed issue a forty-three. Sniper character was in fact loosely based on a amalgam of real-life people, including Hathcock. Interesting. Eric Spear uh, talks about how issue forty-three was great, but forty was his, so far was his favorite. He wanted them to do an an issue from either Gunner door gunner or artilleryman's point of view. Um, make sure he's a UH, UH-1B if you do a door gunner. Um, my father was in the NAM, 60 to 69, serving in 2nd Field Force Swan Lok. His whole tour was in artillery. He helped the Airborne Cavalry work with 105s. How about a story? And they said they have a helicopter story coming up, a three-parter no less. We hope to do an arty story in the near future. Give my best to your dad, and thanks for the interest ryan kilbride of philadelphia writes about how he's been collecting the nom since he saw an issue on the racks two years ago um he says it really gives a realistic look at the war he says if there are any ex-grunts who would write to me i'd appreciate hearing from them and doug says any takers you have a letter from brooks connor sp5 from tuckerton new jersey says i've been a subscriber since issue two I've enjoyed every issue. I was in the Army from July 64 to July 67, always under the threat of being sent to the NAM. Fortunately, I spent all my time stateside, in Fort Polk, Fort Jackson, and then in Washington, D.C., Still, everything in your comic coincides with what I saw and heard from the returnees and the training camps. God bless you vets. I had a good friend who was a Huey tail gunner in Fubai, somewhere between 65 and 68. His name is Ed Wheeler. I'd really like to find him. Anybody out there know his whereabouts? And any help from Mr. Connor is the reply. And finally, we have Private Carol Westover-Hawk from Epson, New Hampshire. I'm a private in the U.S. Army Reserve's 94th MP Company. Vietnam fascinates me. The war is mysterious. I have to know what really happened, no matter how horrific. I've been researching the war for many years now. I even thought, even though I was only born in 1970, it's a very serious war and very unpleasant. The depiction of it through comics is not something that someone could call terrific and great. It's not. Is Is it a good thing that Vietnam is getting this coverage, or should it be hidden and totally forgotten the way we attempted to handle it in the 70s and 80s? I say, tell the story. The Nam is worth reading because it conveys knowledge, good or bad, and that's better than the ignorance we had before. After all, how can we ignore the pain of a war that's still killing people? No, ignoring the war is how the cancer in this country began. Now finally, movies like Born on the Fourth of July and comics like the Nam and the Vietnam Journal are fighting to cure that cancer, trying to make no man feel like he is separate any longer. Will these wounds ever heal? I hope so. I want our nation to be cured of the Vietnam War, no longer how it takes. And I'll always be here trying to help to understand, learn, and feel. Can we learn from our mistakes only if we try? Thank you for listening. Hawk, let me tell you. Let me thank you for your interest and feelings about the Vietnam War and its veterans. If we ever solve any of the problems caused by the war, it'll be because people like you care enough to put out the necessary effort. Thanks and my best to you and yours. I can't believe that people born in 1970 are in the Army. That really makes me feel old. And right below it, there is a panel from the next issue with two donut dollies waving at a helicopter pilot saying, Hi, soldier. How about a lift? Ads this month... Uh, the codename Viper ad is back. There's power jumping and bombs. There's the Wrath of Black Manta. We have an one for the game NARC. You are Max Force. Because no one had the guts until now. You are Max Force. Your mission, bust Mr. Big and destroy the dreaded criminal empire. Seize all the contrabands stolen money illegal weapons use rocket bombs high-powered machine guns and apprehend all suspects protect the innocent punish the guilty stop at nothing it's for nintendo and this season it has a just say no international logo next to the acclaimed logo interesting i wonder if that was some sort of partnership east coast comics has an ad. So you got a nice huge i used to love going through these i always kept wanting to write that i i chose mile high comics over the east coast comics ad I have to look up and see if East Coast Comics is actually still in business. To be honest with you, there's a two-page ad for Child World. Child World was like a second-rate Toys R Us and the Children's Play Palace. Um, I remember the Child World basically were not very far down from the Toys R Us, and it closed down a few years into the '90s. But there was that there were like three big big play uh, there were three big toy stores in my area of long island there was a toys r us there was child world and there was a play world play world was awesome if you were like one of those kids who like random toys or stuff that hadn't been around for a while because like they still had racks of like Star Wars power of the force figures and stuff a couple of years after that had gone away because like nobody was buying it i remember when they were going out of business anyway child world um, their video game headquarters. They have a Nintendo Entertainment System for ninety nine ninety nine. The Nintendo Action Set. And that's actually the one I had, um, because that's the one with, that came with the Zapper and the uh, and the controller. Although this is the orange Zapper and not the gray Zapper. I had the gray Zapper. And then the Genesis for one hundred eighty dollars and one hundred eighty nine ninety nine. Yeah, the Genesis had just come out. This is a this is a big deal here. Although Super Mario Three is there. Adventure Link, Punch Out, Double Dragon, uh, NFL Pro Set, Pro Football Cards. We are getting close to the uh, NFL season here, so that, that's I guess that's why we're seeing so many football cards. Haven't seen any real. There's that Fleer one again. Haven't seen. Haven't really seen any real um, like Marvel trading cards or DC trading cards or anything like that. There is bullpen bulletins. The ultra narrow checklist goes from Avengers 322 all the way to Doctor Strange number 17. GI Joe's on number 104 at this point. They use the word "funnest" in here. Jeez. Uh, there's convention schedules. McFarland Skylarup uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Chicago's you're gonna have Defalco, Eric Larson, Howard Mackey. Yes, this is all about, all about conventions and stuff. Um, there's going to be the Atlanta Fantasy Fair with Bobby Chase, Mike Rockowitz, Danny Fingeroth, and Jack Kirby. And uh, there's the UK Comic Art Convention in London, England on September 22nd to 23rd. And it says, it's a jolly good way to close out the summer. Hey, what? That's a terrible accent. I'm sorry, Andy. That accent was not <laughs> And uh, down in the stands soapbox in the bottom left hand corner. He talks about he was in Marvel Age magazine and he, taught, he teamed up with one of comics was popular writer artists to create a brand new Marvel mag. And uh, it's not really revealed. It says that the person is John Byrne, but it does not say when it's going to be out, and it does not say what it is. So I guess we'll see. <laughs> And that's about it on the ads. The subscription ad just shows uh, a bunch of Marvel heroes in classic uh, poses. We have Super C, and on the back cover, we have Vampire's Ghosts and Things That Go bump Tonight, the new Ravenloft box set from Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. So I'm going to take a break right here, and when I get back, I will have Savage Tales number one. (laughs)
1: Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Back to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Back to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Back for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Back to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Back and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics, or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film. Shipper Spalway, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history and determines whether they are hot or not. Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to BADs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I've been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their backroll year one work, Brian Q. Miller on his backroll run, Dwayne Swzinski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled The Web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at TheBatmanUniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batroll to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Bat's lovers.
0: Savage Tales had two incarnations. The first was a magazine put out by Marvel in the early to mid-1970s that was most famous for stories featuring Conan the Barbarian. The series ran for 11 issues and had one annual. What I have is the second incarnation of Savage Tales, which ran for eight issues in 1985. Issue number one was cover dated October 1985, and it came out on August 13th, 1985. The cover is by Michael Golden, and it shows a woman riding a motorcycle wearing a bikini with a guy strapped to the front of it, and another woman behind her was also scantily clad and firing a machine gun. It's very heavy metal. And obviously it has nothing to do with the story I'm about to read. The credits on Savage Tales magazine are as follows. Uh, Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. Larry Hama was the editor. Pat Redding was the assistant editor. Danny Crespi was art production coordinator. Barry Shapiro was design. Mike Golden cover. Vincent Waller front's piece. The front's piece, by the way, is an illustration on the inside back cover of two guys firing on a motorcycle cop and killing him while they crash an old car into a guardrail. Our story is called Fifth, The Fifth to the First. It's by Doug Murray and Michael Golden. It's a piece that's mostly narration boxes that I'm going to read straight from the page. But before I do that, I want to read the clever biographies that were written on page five of the magazine. Doug Murray is one heck of a nice guy. He's also twice as big as me and was crazy enough to volunteer for EOD and re-up for a second tour in-country. Doug also had a bad habit of being in places that got overrun. I think we'll keep him. Mike Golden doesn't have a phone. He gets his messages in a biker bar down in Daytona Beach. But no one had to tell him that a belt of 7.62 NATO is loaded into an M60 with every fourth round a tracer as well as the last three. See the cover. I like that. He also rides a Harley. Enough said. All right, so here's the fifth to the first. The Nam, 1967. I'm Roger Young, officer and gentleman. Courtesy of Uncle Sugar. Six months ago, I was in college worrying about my grades and my girl. Now I'm in the nom, worrying about the slicks getting me getting here on time. Rich Heidel, my Sarge, is the best in the biz. A real professional, third tour here, hell on wheels in the field, a drunken disaster in Garrison. SP5, ML Pally, Croker, our medic. A Quaker who pay for, pray for the enemy, but will singe his butt pulling yours out of the fire. So SP4, Garland Bremby, a streetwise city kid who's a rock and a pickle, best poker player I've ever seen. SP4, Paul Hogan, and, SP- and PFC John Duff, head and fats. These two experiment with consciousness-expanding drugs, but they get the job done. All in all, this ain't Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos, no heroes here. What makes a hero? Hell, I don't know. Not here because I wanna be. I got drafted just like everyone else. I'm only wearing this bar because I figured I could get out of KP that way, but I'll tell you I knew a hero once. We just gotten this new replacement, Santos, his name was, he was Puerto Rican kid from New York, real hot shot, enlisted when he was seventeen, wanted to get a medal to prove he was man, to prove he was an American. He was a gunner, shot expert with everything the army had we got gotten orders to send a squad out for an ambush near the Z and I figured I'd take him along and see what he was made of. We choppered out to an LZ about 20 clicks from the Z and packed the rest of the way on foot, set up by an ambush along one of the little tracks Charlie used to bring in men and supplies. The second night out, we caught a little column of Charlie on the path and we blasted the hell out of him. The next morning, we started back. Santos had done okay in the ambush, and the sarge put him in the middle of the line in return. We're only a couple of miles from our LZ, and I was starting to think about a tall, cold one when it happened. We'd come through this little village on the way out. I don't think it had a name. It sure wasn't on any maps. We hit it on the way back. I knew we were close to the LZ anyway. When we went through the village. It seemed deserted. That should have tipped us off, but the first thing we knew, we were catching fire from all directions. Charlie had cleaned the village out and put heavy machine guns in huts at both ends. Those gun cut us to ribbons in the first few minutes. The tail end of the patrol was wiped out and nothing flat. The Sarge, a couple of riflemen, Head and I were flat in the bu- in the mud, with no way out. The fire was so heavy we couldn't raise up enough to throw a grenade, but a seventy nine might do. Head still had his, but was damn near out of rounds. He'd fired off a bunch of the ambush and lost a couple of waiting river on the way back he shouted to me that he had one HE high explosive left. And he plugged that sucker at the MG behind us. Well, his shot was right on, but the 79 round has to rotate a certain number of times after it's fired to arm the explosive so that's so you don't accidentally hit a tree or a bush in front of you and blow the crap out of yourself. The hut was just too close. The round impacted right next to Charlie's window, but it didn't go off, it just stuck there. I figured that was it for us. When the flankers came in, they'd come as soon as they heard the firing. A couple of us might make it out, but most of us would, be, would have bought it by then. Then I saw something. Santos had been hit in the first burst, and I thought he was done along the rest of the tail end, but he was getting to his feet. He charged right at Charlie's gun, got hit three or four more times, too, but he kept on his feet, and he just threw his body at that 79 round. The round fell out of the wall, rotated a couple of times, hit the ground, and blew up. Charlie's gun was shot to hell, and with the crossfire gun, Sarge managed to put a grenade down on Charlie's other gun. We cleaned up in a hurry, and I called in a medevac dust-off for the wounded. I never found enough of Santos to send back. Even his dog tags were gone. But I remembered what he did. The captain wanted to put him in for the Silver Star, but those were a dime a dozen. Hell, they were even giving them to dogs in the South. I held out for the Congressional Medal of Honor, and he got it. Like I said, I don't know what makes a hero, but I knew one once. And there's a shot of Santos standing next to a sign. This is Welcome to Vietnam the Congressional Medal of Honor, and on it says, I made it, Dad. I don't know if I have much to add to this in terms of my review, other than to say I completely understand why Doug Murray and Michael Golden were chosen for the nom. This is a six-page story. It's an example of incredibly well-written short fiction, the type of thing that I wish I could pull off, to be honest. Murray introduces us to each of the characters and, and approaches the issue of wanting to be a, quote, hero and defining what a quote, hero, is, but does so in a way that's not sanctimonious or maudlin. Golden's art is as stunning in black and white as it is in color. He gives each of the characters in the story a distinct personality and knows exactly when to make the panels and page very busy. There were some times where I had to look a little harder than usual to figure out what was going on, but that's because Golden was just doing such a good job of getting us into the setting of the jungle and the confusion of the events. He uses large panels judiciously, with only six pages he really can't afford them. And the last panel, with our narrator holding a helmet in his hand is, and looking at the ground, where one of Santos's shoes is sitting there, the top of it blown apart, is as powerful as the portrait of Santos with the Medal of Honor that accompanies it. It's an excellent story that I don't think has ever actually been reprinted anywhere, which is a shame, because this would have made for an excellent bonus feature in a trade paperback. By the way, if I'm mistaken, let me know. I only have the three trades that were issued in the late 1980s and collect the first 12 issues. The NOM has been collected a couple other times, up until about issue 30 or so, so maybe Marvel did collect them at some point. Before I go, I do have an email. This one's from Luke Giaconetti. Luke actually sent me two emails, but it's kind of back and forth between us, and it starts with him writing to tell me about Dong Zai, a Joe Kubert written and illustrated graphic novel that DC Comics put out a few years ago. Luke writes the following Hey man, was reading something last week which made me think it might be something you could be interested in covering on In Country. Dong Zai, reading Vietnam, 1965 by Joe Kubert. It's a lightly fictionalized account of a very early battle in the war where a team of U.S. advisors are in a strategic important village which is attacked by a mass vc contingent it's typical Kubert war stuff which is to say fantastic but it's also a highly detailed work look at the early era of that war there's a ton of back matter in the book as well as detailing Kubert's research with the actual team which was there in Dong Sai. the book is black and white and looks like it was done with charcoals which is really suitable for the story anyway i thought you might dig it hope you and your family are doing well luke I wrote back, you must have read my mind. I picked that up in a discount trade bin a little while ago. And while I haven't read it, I'm definitely planning on doing a special episode about it at some point in the future. And to come out on my email, by the way, I'm just going to say I am going to cover it sometimes in January as a feature piece like this. Uh, I also suggested Luke that he come on. So maybe, maybe I'll be able to get him on for the episode. Luke wrote me back. and He said, Tom, wow, that's funny. I ended up buying the trade paperback release when it first came out, but only read it last week because I have been trying to go through my trades and hardcovers to actually read them rather than piling up. Cerberus is going to be a big project. So is Marvel's G.I. Joe. I would love to get star in In Country. It's a show which I'm always excited to see on the feed and usually goes right to the top of the queue. Speaking of which, I loved your Full Metal Jacket episode. have not seen that one in years, so I'm probably due for a rewatch. I agree with you about how Kubrick's almost staged approach to direction, but it's something which I have thought about in most of his films. The Shining, and certainly 2001, also fit that mold. And I think the word you might have been reaching for with Platoon was naturalistic. Stone's depiction of the war is gritty, certainly, but the difference between those films to me is Kubrick's approach is stylized and detached while Stone's is more real, almost approaching cinema verite at points. At some point, we should do First Blood, Part 2, like we discussed a while back. I'd also love to talk about The Deer Hunter, which is a favorite of mine, but that was that, that one has a big elephant in the room that the main, car- that the main set piece of the film, the VC por- forcing the POWs to play Russian roulette, has no real basis in fact. But its look at PTSD is chilling. For fun, you should do the Green Berets, maybe for an April Fool's episode. So thanks for writing in, Luke. Um, you touched on some things I definitely want to have on my list of stuff to cover, and I hope it'll all work out the way I want it to. Um, and I love your analysis of both Platoon and Full Metal Jacket. Some great, great stuff there. And if you if you did get a chance, um, check out Luke's podcast. He has a Daikaiju podcast called Earth Destruction Directive. And he also appears on... I believe the startling monster horror vault tales of terror. And I just butchered that title. uh, That's over to true, to true freaks. And he has a blog called being Carter hall, which is all about Hawkman. So go check those out. Luke's a great, great podcaster uh, and and a hell of a nice guy. Hell of a nice guy. So anyway, that's it for me. Uh, I will have another issue and I will actually have the other savage Tales story next episode. So come back for that in two weeks. And until then, thanks for listening. And take care. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nam, The Nam, and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at PopCultureAffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to PopCultureAffidavit at gmail.com. InCountry also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash InCountryPodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the DeMonza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at 2TrueFreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the Saga of the Nam.